This is a Demon FM podcast. Hello, welcome back to Demon FM. This is In Focus and we're here to talk about the strikes that you see. You strikes. I'm joined by two people today. I've got Tarrant. Hi, Tarrant. Hello. And Tom. Hello. So, Tarrant, quickly explain who you are because you're not a regular on this show. Um, so, I'm a politics and international stu- relations student at DMU. I'm in my second year. Uh, I'm also the social secretary of the Labour Society, so I've got that going for me. Yeah, and Tom, you are regular, but explain why you're debating Tarrant today. Uh, I'm Tom, I'm an economic student, and I'm in third year. And we're talking about strikes, I think? Yeah. Um, yeah. The delightful topic that is strikes. Now, I'm anti the strike, and Tarrant is pro the strike, I understand. Yes, indeed. Let's go to get into that. Why, why Tarrant, are you for the strikes? Uh, so there's a variety of reasons, but, uh, but of the sort of, I feel like one of the issues with these strikes is that the actual reasons behind them and why the strikes are happening are being a bit misconstrued. Because one of the problems with unions is they have specific branch, and then they've got the national ones. So the national ones have general ones, but our branch has a specific one. It sounds weird, but I'll get there. So essentially, I'm behind the strikes because the four, what we call the four fights. Um, the here at DMU are very worthy causes, certainly should be taken action over, over, and all four of them are having a genuine and serious effect on the students' education here at DMU. Tom, why are you anti the strikes? Uh, I'm anti the strikes not because I don't believe in the causes of the strike, but because the strikes don't actually help the situation in any way. Mainly because tuition fees are paid to the university... So £9,250 per student, which goes to the university. The uh, lecturers are going on strike, so they're not being paid, and the university keeps the tuition. So where is the cost to the university in this? If anything, the university actually gains in financial terms, at least. Cool. Let's sort of start with an easy question, and I'll open it up for you to sort of have a debate around. Are these strikes even necessary? That's a thing I've heard a lot around campus. I think the strikes are certainly necessary. I think it's kind of difficult for a lot of students to sort of compare and sort of fully appreciate the sort of situation that some lecturers are in. Um, Previously, the National UCU uh, group have done research, and I think it was, I don't remember the exact figures, but I believe it was 72% of lecturers around the country said that their workload, which is one of the four fights, has a serious impact on their mental health. So we have scenarios like in 2018 when uh, a lecturer in Cardiff, I forget to, fail, uh, I forget to remember his name, uh, unfortunately ended his life over his workload. And speaking to some of the lecturers here at DMU, their workload is ridiculous. Um, so one of them that I've personally spoke to, he's working between 200 and 400 more hours a year than he's contracted, so he's not getting paid that. His allocated amount of time to mark an essay and give feedback is 15 minutes per essay. But in reality, that to give good feedback, it only takes, it takes about an hour. So that's an awful lot of work for time that, he doesn't have so it's taken a genuine impact yeah i think that's a good point tom anything are these strikes necessary um i think something is necessary in order to solve the problems which the lecturers currently are facing whether that be a amount of time they are given 
to mark specific pieces of work or whether it's the amount that are paid or that sort of thing. They obviously are un- over- are overworked rather. But I don't think the strikes are really going to solve that problem because the strikes don't hurt the university fundamentally and they are just a waste of time. They just cost people like me, a student, as well as you, Tarrant, and everyone else money really because they paid a tuition fee, they've paid to be here and they're being taught, but they've then got these lectures going on strike and no one's paying them back. No, I, I do I do understand that point and I don't particularly disagree. I think one of the major issues with a strike is obviously its effectiveness tends to depend on how many people get involved with it. At the moment, obviously, no clue until Thursday morning how many people are actually going to be taking part in the strike. The hope is that these first two days that the strikes are happening will be enough to make sure that the universities in the around the country are willing to sit down and have a genuine serious offer and discussion with the UCU about what we want well I say we about what the uh, UCU people uh, group want so it's certainly it's certainly all dependent on how many people get involved I will say that I mean I, I generally say though that I don't think students support these strikes fundamentally I don't think the students do support the strikes. Uh, I have yet to find any student that's pleased with the strikes, bar those that are ideologically attached to the Labour Party um, or, the, or in the Labour Party or support communist or socialist tendencies that are generally pro-union. I think most students come to university for quality of education. They pay a fee, they expect a service, and that's currently not being delivered thanks to the strikes, which the lecturers are currently leading and supported by political parties like the Labour Party. Well, I... I- I mean, the Labour Party was born out of trade unions, so it'd be extremely unlikely that anyone in the Labour Party would be drastically opposed to any form of strikes. I think I, I will say about your um, point about you not knowing anyone who supports them, bar people in the party, I will say I can say the exact same in the opposite way. I think the issue here is that I'm not fully aware that the people I tend to discuss these sort of issues with with the exception of a few, have a fairly similar ideology to me. So, of course, they're more likely to be supportive of the strikes. It'll be the same with you. But opposing the strikes, I presume, obviously I can't talk for you. Well, they don't necessarily... They, they feel sympathy for the lecturers, and I think we all feel sympathy for the lecturers. But unfortunately, they've paid a sizable sum of money to be here, and they're not getting a service delivered and the strikes aren't actually helping the situation. All they're doing is annoying the students. They are costing lecturers money because they're not attending work, Mm. and they are just making the university richer, which is essentially helping the university. So the university almost has an incentive to just carry on as it is. No, I completely understand that. I think the issue is that um, when it comes to sort of the financial aspect of it, I I do see your point. I think... The only issue is uh, university tuition fees aren't quite as well protected in law as sort of other services. There's a few. I was looking at them before I, uh, I came here today. There's a few, but I will be honest, it's very vague. It's not greatly specific, and it tends to be about what uh, like information the university actually provides and whether or not it goes back on that. I think... There is history of, I think it was the University of Wolverhampton, where a lot of the students, after they had strikes, 
uh, they petitioned the university. Sheffield Hallam are currently on the process of doing it. I don't know how successful that is. I know they've got a lot of signatures, but I don't know where that's going to lead to. University of Wolverhampton gave each student that was affected by the strikes £100. The only issue is you won't likely get that in a form of like sort of financial refund it basically yeah it just gets taken off your tuition fees i completely agree i think the university should be repaying that loan that well that payment almost that the students are going to be end up paying i think it's just difficult in how you go away around it certainly for that tom anything to add to that or do you sort of agreement with that because i think a big fear for you is losing out on the tuition that you've paid yeah, I feel as though I'm a consumer and I've purchased a good and I'm not being having that delivered. Um, obviously, I, I partially, I'm partially angry with the university for not making it easier to claim, but I'm also slightly angry with the union because they are going on strike for no real reason because it doesn't benefit them, it doesn't benefit the students. All it does is better the university's financial state of affairs. Well, it, the, what they, the union get out of this is entirely dependent on what the universities offer. I mean, we had these set of strikes. The Montfort University didn't go on strike back in October, November time, where there was eight days of strikes. Um, I don't remember the exact figures. I think it was around 50 universities went on strike. This time, it's 74 uh, universities are going on strike because they didn't achieve what they want in the last set of strikes. That's why they are undergoing it again. And so I will go back to my earlier point of it is entirely dependent on how many people actually strike and so i think it's a bit difficult mm. in like as we're going up to the strikes i mean in a few weeks time i'd probably be able to give a better answer but obviously at the moment i have no clue as the actual figures because lectures, that's something i have found as well is that a lot yeah. of lecturers aren't just aren't going on strike some won't some are, i completely understand like some of them it is they are losing out on a lot of money and i think there's uh they're trying to find ways around that seeing if i i do know some lecturers have said that they are willing they won't be going on strike but they won't be covering any striking lecturers lectures which is a distinct possibility especially with the uh, university sending out an internal communication to all students who don't remember the exact date it was sometime last week yeah where they stated that there would be no disruption to anyone's lectures i think that would be hard to believe with the sort of the scale we're expecting i mean I, I, you say that but then all of my economics lecturers for example have said that essentially yeah. the strikes they're not striking um yeah most of my lectures won't actually be affected um but it's more for those students that will be affected and it's almost as though great you're going on strike and having a bit of a paddy and hitting your head against the wall repeatedly but not actually getting the results that you want out of this because as you said they went on strike before and nothing happened and they're going on strike again and I don't think anyone, anything else will happen either I think they'll go on strike they'll have a paddy and then nothing will change and all we've really done is annoy some students well I mean this branch at the Montfort University specifically didn't go on strike at the last set of strikes so it'd be difficult to say on a local level but I think the complete distinctive like difference with the previous set of strikes is the sheer quantity of universities that are going on strike. I mean, I can't believe I can't remember the exact university that it is, but one of the universities that are now going on strike this time that didn't go on strike last time has one of the biggest UCU branches in the country. It's got something like one and a half thousand members, mm -hmm. which considering 
the universe the UCU branch at this university is significantly less than that mainly because we've got less staff but sort of those universities that do have a, a higher standard in the rankings and b have more members of staff going on strike it could make a, a serious shift in how the universities really look at our arguments and the uh, the points that are being made I think that brings up an interesting point like are strikes even still effective in like the 21st century i think they were a big thing in the 20th century do they still work effectively i think we've we've seen you were yet to see a set of strikes sort of similar on the scale since sort of the minor strikes in the 80s and the 70s mainly because of the change of laws it's very difficult for strikes now to be organized um there's, I, I don't remember the exact laws, but regardless of party, the past few governments have seriously ha- uh, damaged trade union uh, power, rightly or wrongly, it's, uh, it's the truth. So we're yet to see a big enough strike. There has been a few, so sort of ones on... Uh, especially McDonald's ones, haven't there, and stuff like McDonald's. that. McDonald's. But the one with McDonald's was... There was only a few stores that did it, so it really didn't really achieve anything. Mm-hmm. But it's like places like in London, because uh, a lot of the tube staff go on strike quite frequently. Yeah. Since there's so many of them actually going on strike, they're quite effective in getting a turnaround in the results. So I think again, that's somewhere that would work, though, because... Obviously, if the tube is closed, people can't pay for their fare. So yeah. then the, the, people, the people operating the tube are then losing out, although that is obviously run by the oh, City yeah. of London, isn't it, TfL. Um, so they are then financially pushed to do something, whether that's raise wages, better uh, better working conditions, whereas in the case of universities, that doesn't really apply because I've paid my subscription to a, mm. to a, to a service and I'm quite frankly unlikely to claim for the, for the amount back. So whereas, I guess, a strike... In, on the London Underground would have some effect. It's not going to have any effect in this case. I think it's just unfortunately not very effective. I think it will be interesting to see how much effectiveness this the strike do actually have. I do, I do agree with the when it's in a situation, especially when there's such of a like a monopoly on transport in London mm-hmm. from the underground. Obviously, that's going to take a serious impact on people's daily commutes and will force people. Mm. I think it's difficult to compare it. Can you understand why people don't like trade unions, though? No, they I generally cause oh, nothing chaos. It. Yeah, I completely understand it. To people's lives. Yeah, I, I, I completely understand it, but I also feel like they're necessary in that so many of them protect so crucial industries and jobs. If we didn't have these trade unions that are in place, workers could go unprotected and even then if if trade unions hadn't ever existed we wouldn't have anyone really to protect the workers well i I mean i guess you could argue of course that there's things like minimum wage laws there's uh health and safety laws um you know trade unions haven't really existed in the same way they did in the 70s for since the 90s the late 80s earlier yeah probably about 70s 80s yeah so i mean i think most people are fairly happy really I suppose so. you earlier talked about this sort of like, was it the four points? Yes, the four Could points. Could you just go in a bit more about what exactly okay. is being demanded? So the four fights differ from sort of the general argument from UCU on a national level. So the four fights specifically here at De Montfort um, are the casualisation, 
of university uh, staff. So that essentially means uh, lecturers who do not have a full-time job and who are having to work at three or four different universities in the hope that they do get given a full-time job. It is just almost another symptom of the gig economy with sort of uh, staff like companies like Uber and Deliveroo, et cetera, et cetera, where people aren't guaranteed hours. or um, So that's a serious issue. There's another one about pay, but here at De Montfort University, uh, general pay isn't a t- specific issue. They're also... The national argument is for pensions. Again, not a local issue. There's also the argument around inequality with pay. So we got an email today from the interim vice-chancellor. We did. We did indeed. I don't know if either of you have read it, but... I've scanned it, yeah. Yeah, I had a quick scan, but essentially the argument was about two of the four fights for the UCU are the differences in pay between different sexes and different races. Essentially, the email that we got sent out said that we are doing, we've got the so-and-so different percentage of difference yeah. between sex, the different sexes and different races in terms of pay. The issue here it, is that obviously any difference is appalling mm-hmm. and shouldn't be allowed. Obviously, the fourth and final uh, fight is what I discussed earlier, which is workload. Yeah. So you've got casualization of labor, differences in sex, sex pay inequality and race pay inequality, and then workload. I don't think any of us are going to disagree with that. No. Oh, oh no, of course. Tom? <laughs> um, no. No. <laughs> I would say, though, they have received a pay rise, haven't they? A 3.65%. Yeah, well, uh, I think. the pay isn't a specific issue in local area. Okay. So... That is a, one of the more general national fights. That the uh, that is, like I said earlier, one of the issues is that with trade unions, is local branches tend to have different interests and needs than the national one. So, will the Labour Party be supporting them on Thursday? Um, at a local level, yes. National level, we've got our own problems. We've got a leadership election. Yeah, so obviously. But as a society, we'll as a society, we will certainly be doing it. Um, I've got a very long day on Thursday. I look forward to it greatly. A nice 6am start, 10pm finish, so I look forward to it. Um, we'd encourage as many people as possible to either listen to maybe, because I'm sure it, there's only allowed to be six uh, official pickets, uh, people on an official picket, but if anyone is interested, obviously I can't give you the best description of everything. I can only do as best as I can. That's fine. But some of the lecturers were there will be more than happy to help and explain anything that or any questions they have. So, yes, yeah, certainly we will be on the ground helping. You will definitely see us out and about. And Tom, I've just had a tweet from Kyle Scott, and he says, a one-off pay rise doesn't make up for the lack of pay rises to match inflation since 2010. What do you think about that? Um, very few other people have had a pay rise since 2010, so I don't really understand what you're moaning about. That's just the general economy. Unfortunately, we had to deal with that because there was a recession and the government cut back business cut back everyone cut back because we'd overspent during the pre-2008 era and would you anything you'd like to add tom about the strikes just to finish up um i would obviously uh wish the best for my striking lecturers because i do deeply care about them um despite what some people seem to think um and i of course generally wish them luck 
yeah, it's quite civil in the end. Yeah. Anyway, thanks so much for coming on, Tarrant. No worries. Thank you for doing this. Your pleasure. Um, Get involved on Twitter. At Demon FM. Welcome back to In Focus. This that was our section on the strikes. I think there'll be more talk about that as the weeks go on. But for now, that was sort of just a general discussion. Tom's still here. I am. And Hello. Confusingly, Tom has yeah, joined us. Other Tom. Yeah. Yeah. Tom Five. Oh, were you Tom Five? Who's Tom Five? No, Tom Five was. You were Tom, Tom Five. Three Tom now. Guy and Day was Tom Five. Yes, I'm on mic three. Right. Because you'd be Tom Three and. Tom and I'm now Tom Two. Gotcha. Tom nice Two. Tom Three. Nice and simple. <laughs> Bill and Ben and the Flower Pop Men. So All right. <laughs> Steady uh, yourself. I'm very excited. That's a great show. <laughs> anyway, um, Tom, too, is yes. going to lead us with the cabinet reshuffle because that happened on Wednesday. I am. Probably the most noteworthy thing to, to happen this week politically, uh, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, so this has been the second cabinet reshuffle where Boris Johnson, um, who obviously became uh, prime minister, back in the election um it's his second time kind of deciding uh who he wants in the cabinet he's, he's changed a couple of people around um and we're going to focus really on the big names um that have been active in this cabinet reshuffle uh so the first one mainly was chancellor uh sajid javid under theresa may um who has now been um well basically has resigned it was more or less he was he was forced to resign because uh, he didn't agree with Boris Johnson's comments but we'll get on to that later uh, another the, the other two big changes that the uh, Attorney General Jeffrey Cox has also uh, left the cabinet and so has Business Secretary Andrea Ledsom uh, the makeup of the cabinet has also in- uh, changed the proportion of women um, has increased uh, but the actual number has technically fallen uh, because now there's only eight or well, there's only seven positions when there used to be eight so not a huge change what closed? I, I don't know I don't know Brexit? but that's no that's still got to be going no there's still a there's still a Brexit. Oh, we're not talking about that. No, we're, we're not, not talking about that. Who said the B word? No. Um, no, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, I'm not sure what the position was that closed, but it obviously wasn't a high profile one because it's no. it's been disregarded now. Um, so that leads us to our questions, kind of about just the basis of the cabinet uh, reshuffle. So, Martha, will go to you first. Okay. Um, should there be more diversity? Obviously, now there's technically less women, not by a lot, but technically less. Should there be more? They're technically very outdated. Or outnumbered. It's a difficult one because I also think it's the type of diversity you want. Mm. I think there should be an array of people. And I think a big part of that is also in education. You could look at probably how many of these people were privately educated mm. in comparison to the proportion of the country that are privately educated. And it's often a disparage. I think diversity for diversity's sake is never good. Yeah. Because it perpetuates this idea that we have to treat people differently. But I think having some diversity and having new people, especially younger people, in cabinet member positions is quite good. Mm. What about you, Tom? Are you on a similar kind of wavelength as Martha? Or are you? Where do you stand on like the diversity? So, like, obviously, not we've kind of established forced diversity is never good. But how how would you therefore get more diversity without without it being kind of mandatory? Um, I think it's a difficult one. Obviously, it's it's going to take time, and it has been taking time for the last forty years. But we are slowly getting there in the sense I think there are a lot more women in the cabinet than there were 20 years ago. For yes, definitely. definitely. Um, I think in, in the Labour Party, for example, I think more more members are now women than are men, mm-hmm. yes, I think, I think which so. is a massive leap forward. So there is clearly some progress being made, and that isn't necessarily through forced means, is it? No. I don't think they have lists. No, it's not. It's not. It is yeah. completely the, so the Prime Minister's disposal. Maybe that shows that actually it's not necessary to force the, the, the problem, and actually it's possible to do it through social change. Um, over time, mm. which obviously is happening. Um, I think the Conservative Party is getting better, but it's not there yet. As such. No, I don't think anything's truly there yet. Um, I think this is a slow burner. Yeah. Just well, even for Parliament things. as a whole, do you think that 
Because there's no really way, there's no real way you can enforce yeah, no. diversity, is there? I mean, it's all about votes and and winning elections. So, but there are far more ethnic minority MPs. There's far more female MPs. It's about making it accessible to people, yeah. rather than yeah. I think only I, a certain amount of people. I'd like them. to think that we got to a stage where you can be a man or a woman and still make it into the cabinet or mm. be an MP or be the prime minister, and it's not. Sex isn't a thing anymore. You just make it because you can, and you do, not because you yeah. are of a male um, description. Yes, yeah, no, no, definitely. And I, th- I think Martha, you made a good point about like education. Definitely. So in terms of, because that could be one area you do look at. I mean, I know that obviously David Cameron's government got a lot of criticism for kind of having an Etonite front mm. bench. Um, do you think that it should be the prime minister's responsibility to kind of say, well, actually, I am going to pick people from different schooling backgrounds? Yeah, that's it should be. I don't think it will ever truly be. I also think it's about making it easier to get into government. Not easier to get into government, but more sort of people can see it as a ambition in yeah. life. Rather than just to the people who went to Eton, because that's a very like well, a lot of the people Britain exactly. And but that, that's the thing. A lot of the people that are making our decisions and are in the positions of power are privately educated. The, the majority are. So, so Tom, what about that? Like in terms of how would you go about? Like, is it is it we as an electorate should look to kind of into who we're voting for more carefully, um, or should it, like Mark said, be made more accessible for for people from non privately educated backgrounds? I think there are major problems in the sense that not just about being elected, but generally Parliament as a whole. Mm. Because if you go for a job in Parliament, uh, actually, start again. So I went for a job in the European Parliament, right, and uh, for an internship, and I got travel expenses to go there. Which is a massive help because if you haven't got any cash or you live in Scotland, you're coming down to London for an interview. That costs a fortune. Yeah, and you don't have that in the British Parliament in the sense that if you go and apply for a job, you don't expect, you don't then get expenses to work um, for the travel to the interview, for example. So there are massive structural changes like that which don't really involve the political parties as such, but are just institutional. Because I think once you're in the bubble of Parliament, it's much easier to then become an MP. Um, you know, I think a lot of spads become MPs, don't they? Mm. Special advisors who work for MPs and stuff. Um, and then obviously, if you come from a poor background, you're unlikely to work in Parliament in the beginning. Yeah. Um, or work in London. Generally. And that, that should probably be. And that, that's the thing. That's where we should really look to to kind of change things. Because I did an internship at, for an MP, mm. but it was purely through who you who you knew. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Like it, it, there was no like school route you could take, or or you know, like an, an educational thing. It was. M- Purely because I knew someone like an MP that that I could that I could contact and ask, whereas lots of people don't have that. Especially in in non, I mean, I wasn't privately educated, but in non, um, yeah, you know, outside that private education bubble, um, yeah, they, they, they don't really have that that accessibility. It's a bit of a weird one though, because sometimes actually, it's a bit like um, working for a think tank or mm. anything in, in in London in that sort of bubble of politics and business, and where they mix into into intertwine. Um, because actually a lot of it's just about knowing who people are. So you can do an internship by emailing the MP. I mean, mm. my MP at home in Bexland Battle. If you email him your CV, um, then he'll almost certainly give you an internship if you want to do it. Whereas I've got an internship with another, another MP because I know their staff and said, okay, let's do this then. So And that was really, really easy. Was, so it comes through networking as opposed yeah. to kind of they put a post online yeah. saying... But actually yeah. a lot of the time it's just about being told that you can just email the MP and ask. Yeah, that's the thing. It's a big thing. Is just ask if you want something, but it's always a very overwhelming feeling. And I think often, this is a. I'm going to say straight off about this is a generalization, but people who are privately educated might have that bigger confidence than someone or who's just been, told to do it. 
Yeah, yeah they, they, they told, have the guidance. You know, if you're in a class of 30, you might not be as confident as if you're in a class of 15 mm. because there's more voices to be shouted. Yeah. No, definitely. I mean, there's a brilliant website that anyone can go to. It's called work4mpjobs.org. If you go to that, that's where all of the jobs in Parliament are listed and a lot of other jobs as well. So like in lobbying um, and that sort of like work inside the bubble of London, uh, yeah. specifically Parliament. Uh, but you know, nobody seems to know that website exists. I don't know why. I mean, <laughs> well, here we are educating but, people. Get well, that. exactly. But I think if you're privately educated and you go and ask someone, how do I get a joint parliament? That's the first place they're going to send you yeah, to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And most people don't even know it exists, let alone how to apply. Um, but, so yeah. there are, yes, there are routes into it. That, that, and that's the thing. It's, it's about, I think the government should probably do a bit more to, you know, as, as a general body to make it accessible because we want more people in politics. We want um, more ethnic minorities, women. Every we want everybody to find it as an ac- as an accessible form of of career and yeah. and to do work that you know you don't have to just be a because there's lots of volunteers and things that probably like to go into that route, but outside of volunteering, don't know the next steps. Yeah, it's all very good having all this stuff on your CV, but if you haven't engaged with the political system, then they, you don't know it even exists. Exactly. I mean, I only know that stuff exists because I attend Conservative Party conference sometimes. Yeah, that's for the example. Thing. I get told things, how mm. to do things, and mm. that sort of stuff. And I'm not probably educated, but I talk to people and they tell me how to do things. Hello, welcome back to InFocus, where we are discussing the cabinet reshuffle. For some reason, words stopped working in my head then. Uh, Tom, yes. take us through what's changed. Ah, the main change. So I, m- I mentioned them just before the music break, but we'll go through them again because they're the ones that we're going to be discussing, obviously. Uh, so uh, we had Sajid Javid leave um, as the Chancellor, and he's been replaced by uh, Rishi Sunak. Um, who we'll get on to and, and, and talk about a bit about his background. Uh, Suella Braveman has now become the Attorney General uh, and Alok Sharma um, has become the Business Secretary. So just off the bat, just in terms of looking at the names and what you know about them, uh, what are we thinking of these changes, Tom? Uh, I think they, you know, some of the most interesting changes in a long time. Um, Rishi Sunak, of course, has uh, got a lot of stick because he's quite a young chancellor. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's in his late 30s, I think, 39, yep. roughly. And uh, especially on Twitter, I mean, the, the Twitter sphere that it is, has, um, he's got a bit of a backlash because he's quite young to be a chancellor. Um, some people have al- almost suggested that maybe it was an accident in the sense that Sajid Javid was not supposed yeah, to resign. exactly, yeah. He was supposed to just sack all his um, advisors and keep to it. Sharma is an interesting one because he's uh, quite... Uh, popular amongst the Tory reform group, which is like a centre-right um, wing of the party. That is, why are you laughing, Martha? Nothing. Nothing? No, no, no. It's because she just Googled all these people yeah. and she hosts a politics show. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Sorry, continue. Yes, yeah, so you're saying about Sharma. Sharma's a, a Tory reform group um, person who's um, got a lot of support from them and it, it almost suggests perhaps Boris Johnson is actually... Uh, moving his cabinet away from the right and is actually going to be one of the more left-wing conservative governments in a long time. Really? That would be a huge shock considering Boris's portrayal. Well, if you look at... And, and what he's been saying up to this point, for him to then turn... I mean, he, albeit slightly more centre, is still shocking considering. I mean, Boris hasn't really released any economic... Uh, indicators other than the fact that you know the the, the, the fame 50,000 nurses the um, what are the other figures 
the, the ones promised in the, in the, in the manifesto, the mm. particularly short manifesto. Yeah. Um, which have generally so like been... like six new hospitals and things like that. Yeah, or the 40 new hospitals, I think. Oh, is it 40? Oh, of course, because it started yeah. At, yeah, it started at 20 and decreased by six, of course. Sorry, continue. Something along those lines. I, 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 I don't know. I'm just doing the maths in my head for no reason. Go for it. Yeah, so, so, yeah, so you're saying that so outside... But we haven't had, we haven't had the, a huge indication. No. That's the main we, thing we of, of really, really where it's going to be. We don't really know what Boris's government will actually be like. Um, for me, it looks as though it's actually taking quite a Keynesian approach in the sense that... Mm. It doesn't appear to be as harsh as the Osborne and Cameron governments. Right. Um, you know, with the spent, massive spending cuts. Um, it looks as though the, the, the government is essentially turning on the taps and wow. is seeking to spend money, which it hasn't done before. Is that because we've gotten the big issue of the day sort of out the way in Brexit? So like, a lot of what Cameron in the Cameron Osborne cabinet was having to deal with was this like big backbench of Brexiteers. Yeah, the, the and now ERG. that it's happened, they've sort of all just gone cool we're out <laughs> yeah it, it, it's it's weird it, it, it's the i think the leaving on you know on, on the 31st of january was is, is a kind of weird um i don't know how to put it i, th- I think it, it has kind of calmed the not necessarily the nerves but the it, it's, it's kind of ticked a lot of boxes for people i think people yeah. have kind of put it to the back of their minds albeit temporarily um you know all, all of the the mess with that is to come um but i think that ultimately he has got probably the most dare I say united ter- uh, Tory party that we've we've seen in a while Definitely. simply I mean not just because he kicked out all of the Remainer MPs uh, before he uh, you know he, he was even voted in um, but I think that it's it's one of those where he's ended up in a situation where obviously it's, an, it's a new government it's newly voted in we've come back from the winter break and Brexit is, it hasn't been done obviously but it, it, it the first steps real steps have been taken so mm. now if anything this was the best time to do the reshuffle in the sense that it's it's going to be the most Boris product we're going to see yeah, I, essentially. I'm not the biggest supporter of Brexit, but mm. I'm kind of happy that it that we've sort of left in a sense because it sort of it means I don't push, have to keep arguing with my fellow members. Yeah, it means that we can sort such. of like actually focus on some other issues, which yeah. would be nice. It'd be nice. Far more important, really. Yeah, aren't honestly, like on the I grand think, scheme, I think maybe for, it's because we're young people. Maybe that's and, and Brexit doesn't feel like thing. a big thing. Whereas I want to focus in on the economy, on the environment, and I'm hoping that now that we've got, you know, as you said, a more Maybe centrist. I, I think because the, the the party has now got such a big majority in comparison to what it used to have. I, you know, it had a working majority before, and then it had a, um, a work, another working majority, which was it wasn't technically a majority, but mm, had but the support it, exactly. Yeah, which meant that had it, a confidence it, and supply agreement, didn't yeah. it? Which meant that it had to then constantly pander to its wings. Yeah. So because they'd, they'd rebel otherwise. So you have to put people that would rebel in in, in cabinet, whereas now you don't have to do that because. Really, they can almost be ignored. Mm. You can really just run the government how you want. And that may not be on the far right of, of, of politics. It can just be in the centre ground or just governing. Because often the larger people say that sometimes it's good to have um, governments that are kept to account by the opposition and have small majorities. But actually, that tends to lead to the complete opposite in the sense that you get the most extreme politics out of it because they're the mm. only things that can actually be passed. Because obviously the centre of the party will back the government to the hilt anyway. It will never question a piece of legislation. And the wing of the party will question everything. So it means that they'll only actually vote for things they support. So you'll actually end up getting really radical policies out, whether that's Brexit positions or funding for schools or whatever. Whereas now the government basically has got a massive block of MPs which are centrist or centre-right, and it can just push through its agenda, Yeah, which may not be all that radical. No, it's be true good for the country. Is that, yeah, because yeah, because that's the thing, isn't it? It's it's, it's you know the, the radical, the, the the kind of pressure populist 
politics that is played by the likes of UKIP and, and mm. Farage and, and that. Um, it, it, it has been, in a sense, eradicated in, in, in the idea that now you've got this united cabinet um, that is handpicked by Boris Johnson. It's what he wants. It's people that will represent him. Um, but I think on that note, what do we therefore... So obviously we've, we've talked about the changes themselves. Uh, when Sajid Javid um, left uh, or resigned as as Chancellor, uh, he made a really interesting comment that I picked up on in, in an interview with Sky News when um, he said that uh, no self-respecting MP would work under Boris Johnson's conditions. That, and a lot of, a lot of analysis has said, is that that is... In essence, he's heard Boris Johnson's pitch and it is actually more towards the radical side. It isn't your kind of centre government that we're potentially talking about and the 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 not the, the kind of level-headedness that would come with the United Cabinet. I think that, if anything, that's more worrying because it's it's the reports say that Boris Johnson is trying to undermine the Treasury in, in certain regards. So does that bring more questions is it just kind of him you know a bit of sour grapes the fact that he isn't no in the cabinet anymore what do you think martha it's probably a bit of both like mm. you know something i don't know because we actually don't know what boris is going to say so exactly. it's all speculation but i think it's a really interesting comment because usually people leave the cabinet and they don't make such sort of vague comments they don't they want usually- to give any no. comments they kind of this just is- go it's personal it's it's i and wish if them they luck. do make a comment it means they want to bring down the government yeah, yeah. Yes, well, and then which is very early days. If for we're that. looking at that, exactly, it hasn't even made any actions yet. Such, you know, we've just come back from the winter break for God's sake. Um, but yeah, so, so Tom, what do you think? So, in 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 regards to let, let's say Javid's comments do have some weight, because albeit speculation, let's say that in essence he is correct uh, in the term, you know, the idea that Boris Johnson is trying to make these kind of more radical conditions. What would you what would you say in response to that? Is that a is that something people should be worried about? The fact that a, a senior, relatively senior member of cabinet at this point is making that kind of remark? Um, I think that generally, if we look in the past, most prime ministers have had a chance that they've handpicked. So Tony, uh, Tony Blair had Gordon Brown, mm. uh, David Cameron had George Osborne, and they've worked as a pair, and Boris Johnson, uh, and Theresa May and Philip Hammond to some mm. extent. And Boris Johnson has come into um, government really without any great friends, if that makes sense. Yeah. He hasn't got a number two. So I guess he basically just wants to control the uh, number 11 like you would with a number two anyway. So it does, probably doesn't really make a difference. But mm. it is a bit it is a bit radical in doing that. Very, I don't think in the past any prime minister has forced a chancellor to sack all their advisers. Yeah. It's quite a big move. Um, I mean, there's been rumours about Dominic Cummings, for example, and his influence on the situation. Um, but I don't know how much of that is just, is just gossip amongst the, amongst the politicos. It says a lot about Boris, if that makes sense, that he has this power almost yeah. to say that. Maybe it's because, you know, of the majority that I think none of us really expecting. He got this majority and now the party sort of have to listen to everything he says. Yeah, there's there's no there's no real opposition. You know, not until the Labour Party selects new leader and tries to rebuild. You know, it it's it's almost dormant in the sense that, that Boris can and as this shuffle yeah. has reshuffle has shown, he can do what he wants. But then I guess Boris has never really been a one to follow the rules, or he, he's quite <laughs> so outspoken again. and mm, yeah. likes to do things in different ways. Um, it, it just depends: is Boris a tyrannical leader, or is he a good one? I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm, if I'm honest, I'm leaning towards the first option in that. Um, but yeah, I, I guess we will see. Him. Hello, welcome back to Demon FM. This is in focus. That was Heim, and we're going to talk about Erasmus, a big thing for students, I think. Um, so the Erasmus scheme is a European 
um, union programme that helps students study in other countries, specifically in the EU, I think. It is, Currently, yeah. 53% of UK students who study abroad do so through the scheme. In 2017, 16,000 UK students participated in Erasmus, while 31,000 EU nationals came to the UK under the scheme. The government has not yet formally decided whether the UK will continue to take part in this, but MPs voted against a clause that would have required the government to negotiate continuing full membership of the Erasmus programme after the end of Brexit. So I think like the big thing is, as students, should the UK continue its membership of Erasmus? I mean, I think we should, because it's yeah. been overwhelmingly beneficial to students. Um, I think we do tend to get more students from abroad come here than vice yes. versa, don't we? Yeah, it's almost double. thousand. Yeah. It's not a bad thing. What's wrong with educated people coming to this country? Woohoo, let's exactly. have some free labour. No, exactly, oh, yeah. Not quite like well, that. Free labour. That's what they said when they signed the membership. They're like, yeah, woo! Yeah, I, I think it is good in that regard. I think I think that it, it you know it, it's showing that people can come here and study and make a life for themselves and, and I think that it's good was that the it, correct argument exactly yeah and I, and I, <laughs> I time to, to yeah make rational of it um, but yeah and I think it's great for going the other way as well I think I think if we had membership or continued membership with a bit more promotion I think more British people would use it I would consider using it yeah I often think like we've left the EU and that's fine but education I think should stay very open yeah. I think it's very important because I think a lot of people I've met especially from like abroad students it really like opens your op- mind doesn't yeah, it yeah it's like meeting someone interesting it's someone new and while we have like a shared interest in maybe the subject we do lives are completely different I think that's the joy of university yeah that's the whole point how different it? people are to you and how you realise that I mean one of our presenters Leo is from Italy isn't he yeah mm. and he's a regular and we wouldn't have Leo without Erasmus no and he's a producer here as well and he does lots of work and mm. you know that's there's so many people like I think I can't even think like the amount of people that must be in some of my classes that aren't yeah that come here through Erasmus and I think it's uh, also beneficial and they may well settle here as well yeah it's beneficial for the country yeah they pay tax know. And engage in life, have jobs. You know, these are people that we as a country need, and without Erasmus, we might not have. Yeah, I, and I think I think if anything, I, I'm not sure what is in place at the moment. If there's like a, a you know an Erasmus mirror scheme or whatever, um, but for not just you know outside of Europe as well, I think an international education drive I think would be fantastic in if, if there was a and there might already be a, a program that exists to do with that um, but I think that you know because there's lots of international students that not just DMU but, but everywhere in the country so I, I think that with yeah with that with people coming over with a purpose uh, to study with aspiration as well as bringing their you know you know culture and, and vice versa I think that there's just so many benefits to it and I hope that that brexit doesn't um, doesn't bring an end to, to this after the transition period. Yes, same. I mean, the other thing is that I, I think um, Tom mentioned it before. I actually would like to go to another country and study for a while mm. because I think it'd be really, really interesting to just embed yourself in someone else's culture. And most courses these days, especially in places like Germany and Switzerland, um, less so in France, are actually taught in English. Yeah. yeah. I don't think anyone really realises that. It's like no, there's it's... a whole world out there and you can go and study. I think in Germany for as little as £500. Whereas in this country we're paying nine thousand two hundred fifty. Exactly, especially with the strike going on. Oh, exactly. Uh-huh. Oh, let's not get him started. I just, <laughs> I just want to read a comment from a Liberal Democrat MP, Layla Moran, who said, "For students, young people, those in training, and staff who work in the education se- sector, the Erasmus scheme has been absolutely incredible." And I don't think I, 
I don't think I've met many people that disagree. Yeah, why would you disagree with? Yeah. with I mean, you've got to question it really. If if you know, you've got to be very anti immigration in general to, to disagree with just people coming over and studying and at the same time allowing British people the opportunity to go over and study because that's the thing, it's, it's, it's a two way street it's not just us opening the doors for, for people to come on over and, and study it's, it's, it, it is a two way street and it's, and it's beneficial for, for everybody in, on the continent I think, it's, I think they do pay tuition fees mm. but I don't think they pay tuition fees in Scotland which is right. fine. That's Scotch. That's... I think they pay home fees wherever that is. So yeah. in Scotland, they pay nothing. In in, the, in England, they'll pay nine thousand two hundred fifty. Yeah, and that's and it, and I'll pay home fees in Germany. So if they're paying five hundred pounds, I'll pay five hundred pounds, and so on. I mean, that's Scotland's choice. I do find it slightly irritating that people from France can come and study in Scotland for zero, and I can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I want to go study in Scotland. Cause very I thought frustrating. I'd get it for free, but yeah, so many people thought that. They're like, I'm going to the University of Edinburgh. It's like, yeah, okay, well, uh, we'll see you with the same debt as us. Well, you can go and live... Well, you know, you could play around with some... Actually, we're not going down that route. <laughs> well, you uh, just going to suggest fraud. No, 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 not doing that. No, no, no. We no, don't, no. in focus... Suggest fraud. We don't want no, part we're, of Tom's... Yeah, we're, yeah, we're not. <laughs> and that's other Tom, by the way. That's not, that's not regular Tom. Yes. <laughs> I am regular Tom. Okay, we're both regular Tom. Get exactly, over yeah. I'm, I'm Tom 3. You are Tom 3. I'm Tom 2 now, yeah. I'm Tom 2. So sort of... In areas talking about Brexit, not to move this away, um, there was that guy Colin who tweeted earlier in the week about being stuck at customs in oh, yeah. somewhere in the Netherlands. He <laughs> was in a massive yeah, queue. And is this not what people were talking about? And is it not funny that no? I don't think that's about Brexit though. I think that's lack of border stuff. No, but that no, no, but the, what his tweet literally said: "This isn't the Brexit I voted for, Tom." Yeah, but yeah. I don't think that's, that's the whole about point. Brexit. So he voted Leave. Yeah, but it's and, not about Brexit. But, but, we, but we will still be in that situation. Like, when we go to go on holiday after the transition period, we will be in... Everyone knows, everyone that's been to an airport knows that the rest of World Queue is miles longer than the European Union. Yeah, but queue. I don't think we'll go in the west, rest of World Queue. because there's, do there's an EEA, Where would we be? Because there's an EEA slash EU slash Switzerland queue. But that's only if we get in on, like, a very soft Brexit so deal. So it's very dependent on the we'll terms. be put into that queue. Yeah, but right now... But, but we don't know for sure. Oh, I no, like to, I'm going to have to queue. I like to... No, I would... Ra- yeah, but that, that's the thing. I mean, I don't support Brexit. Let me, let me make that no, I know you don't. We're all rainers in here. Um, but it, oh, but it's, it's great, isn't it? Isn't it? Nice and positive. Um, but uh, no, it, it's one of those where I think that that I call the BBC soon. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's, a bias. that's a singer. Um, but no, I, I think that yeah, it, it it. But the great thing about that tweet is that it's a small point in the sense that he said, you know, this isn't the Brexit I voted for. But ultimately, it's it's the right, it's the right thing. And and and, and you know, it, in terms it really of, well captures it, doesn't it? Yeah, what we've been saying because it's just one, it's one thing element thing. of what was called scaremongering inverted commas, that is now happening. Be, is now happening. That is now been kind of proven correct. Is it scaremongering if it's actually happening? I mean, I'm rather looking forward to all these little things happening because in a way, I was right and they can't say I wasn't. Part of me thinks that. As a reminder, part of me thinks that, that if it goes really, really badly, because ultimately Brexit, as I've said on this show before, is just for people to um, you know, throw themselves off a cliff just to show they can get back up. But I, at the same time, <laughs> I would rather us not have yeah. to go through that even be it short term I'd rather us not go through that I'd rather I, I would rather Brexit go well and us be economically prosperous I mean I think I imagine that's one of those things about um, Brexit in general though because we've now got a relatively large majority the Conservatives got a large majority so they don't then have to worry about the, the, the Eurosceptics in the party quite as much mm. or the wings so they can now just pass a probably quite a soft Brexit in comparison to what we would have had had 
um, Boris Johnson had a tiny majority of like three or something or even less. So that Reese Mogg and stuff could kind of bully him around. Yeah, because they, they, he'd need their votes. Whereas now, you know, they can rebel and it won't matter, really. Mm. So we'll probably get quite a soft Brexit, hopefully. Yeah, I do think probably in the long term it will be a soft Brexit. I just thought it was an interesting t- tweet to bring up because this trend on Twitter all day. <laughs> and it is just something that like, this was a fact that I think was made clear. But it's... F- so you think... But there yeah, were lots of it, facts that were made clear, such as... I think it's eco- just interesting. Yeah, I think such as economist projections saying how terrible it would be, but we've got to the point, unfortunately, in politics where professional opinion... I would say that there hasn't been a recession. No, but there? they didn't say that... that like, Brexit is not done. That's the whole point. Yeah. And, so, like, this is, you know, and the value of the pound is still worse off as projected. Mm. I know that, but then again, I still don't take that too well in the sense that you know, too tart because it is one of those things where it's not done yet. We are still in this transition period of. Well, yeah, we really haven't left the European Union. No, we so haven't. It, we have in, pra- is, in principle, happened. but not in practice. Mm. Nothing has changed. I can still. I mean, there are some things, though. For example, like um, I now cannot go. I don't think I can now go to another country and settle. I need. I, I now need paperwork. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I didn't used to have to do that. Yeah, before that's I the moved point to France. of what's getting rid of free movement. Yeah. yeah. So th- there are aspects like that where Brexit has. You can see it. So there's some effects are being felt already. Whereas yeah. before that wasn't there, so there are some effects, um, but yeah. more will come with time. Only time more will tell. Come. Yes, my holiday to Spain will get significantly more expensive due to the exchange rate, all the potential application processes, etc. I will but, say, actually, visas are quite cheap. Yeah, but for certain places, they're they're not, but they're not cheaper than free. No, I. Well, this is I'm the thing. What happens if you're I'm a working class saying- family from I don't know Blackpool and want to go on your <laughs> and want to go on a holiday once every four years to. I'm aware. I'm just. Spain? I'm pointing um, out that um, Madrid, visas for someone Madrid, like Tom will I mean, be like fine. A beach. A, a beach place in. I don't know. So what's Barcelona. on the southeast? <laughs> I, I, um, I don't know. Where's that, Spain? Um, where's that place in southeast with lots of um, red, chubby men? Well, not Benidorm. Yes, Benidorm. That's the one. <laughs> what happens if you're in Blackpool? Want to go to Benidorm for your six quid a visa? Yeah, that's going to add done. a significant sum to a lot yeah. of people's holidays. I know it will, and maybe if there's some sort of Brexit agreement where we get a discounted visa, I'm not sure. Well, why do we have a visa? Anyway, not arguing because Brexit we left again. The because unfortunately, we have left the EU. It's just on the terms whether we'll see if the Remainers were actually just scaremongering. Although so far, it looks like we haven't been. Hello, welcome back to Demon FM, as the thing said. Um, we're going to talk about Jeff the Amazon man, because mm-hmm. did we establish how to say his name? I think we should uh, confirm who Jeff the Amazon man is. Yeah, it sounds as though you're, you've uh, found someone in the Amazon called It's just Jeff. a courier. <laughs> just turned up with an Amazon Prime parcel. <laughs> and he's here to discuss it. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think about Erasmus, Jeff? Well, okay, it's so very good, I think, yes. Jeff- just don't, don't, don't. <laughs> so, Jeff... Bezos? Yes. No, Be- Bezos. I say Bezos, yeah. Bezos. I've never heard his name being said out loud. Right. He is the boss of Amazon. I think one of its founders or its He's founder. the founder, yeah. Very rich. I think he recently bought a house that if you equated it to his net worth would be about £78 if you earned like a smaller amount. Like the percentage that the house oh, right. cost in average comparison. Salary. The percentage of his salary, it's like yes. nothing yeah, yeah. in comparison. I get it. But that's, he's done something good. Or maybe yeah. Let's see. <laughs> He's pledged ten billion dollars um, or seven point seven billion to help fight climate change. Um, he has said, sorry about it. He said that the money would finance scientists, activists, and other groups. Um, Jeff estimated net worth is 
130 billion and the pledge would represent 8% of his fortune which is kind of you know a large figure it is a, a large big figure, figure for, yeah. for a rich person to give away yeah he had said this will he said that he will start distributing money over the summer period some of amazon's employees have been urging him to do more to fight climate change he's been criticizing for financing the blue origin space program due to its carbon footprint he's also been criticizing criticized for not signing the giving pledge under the under which the super rich promised to give away half of their wealth during their lifetimes is that the one that's founded by um what's his name warren buffett Yes, I think it is. Yes, that's, that yeah, that's a really good cause actually. They're mm. Trying to give away all their money basically because they feel like it's a good idea. Still though, eight percent of your, of your uh, income. I wouldn't give eight percent of my income. Uh, sorry, eight percent of my wealth when I die to charity. Not going to lie. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm a bit of a selfish give person. It all but, to charity. You know, the whole thing. <laughs> Screw my children. Oh, right. Well, oh. by the time you get through, well, they here. Yeah. <laughs> by the time you Meet get ben to and like, Bill. actually, to be honest, by the time you get past like funeral costs and all that stuff, and mm. like lawyers to do your will. There's basically no money left, so yeah. it's fine. But it's interesting seeing a, it's, like, um, a media mogul because he, you know, he he owns a lot of of the media and even has assets in America such as the Washington Post. Um, he's got a lot of influence and a lot of power. Um, so for him to kind of use that and his wealth to fight climate change and and at a very genuine cause, I think that's and I think it's a great precedent to set. Hopefully for for other people in his position. Um, you know the, the other more powerful people and wealthy people in society to, to kind of do the same and maybe get them a bit more turned on to, to the issues facing the, the world. It should be noted that um, Bill Gates is also part of the Giving Pledge, who is a very charitable yeah, he's man. Given, yeah, he's given away got, a ton, like, isn't he? Multiple mm. foundations and all that. But no, I agree. I think lots of like these super rich have been sort of um, criticised for sort of like like when the whole Hoarding Notre cash. Dame thing was on fire and billionaires were pledging money for that yeah. and yet then the Amazon was on fire it's and like, nobody was saying really anything like, mm. in the end one of those is a building which meh. and the other one is a huge rainforest yeah exactly what's yeah. more important <laughs> and I think it's always interesting because you know you, you talk about we always say giving money away and it's like you know as if uh, and you have to remember that it's just like with tax it's so proportional in the sense that you know, these these aren't people that you know what they're giving away. Most people won't make in their lifetime. Exactly. So it it it's hardly. I, I feel like it should be more encouraged, and it's good for a big, like I was saying, it for for a powerful, wealthy man to to go. Yeah, actually, we are setting this precedent. I am going to um, do do things to help the environment, to to help social causes. And I think that will, I think this will, like you know, we we talk about Bill Gates and and his generous donations, but this will encourage more people in that kind of privileged few within the corporate world to actually maybe take some more action against against the, the causes that need fighting for. Yeah, and to add on to a point that you've said, like, we're often urged to do stuff as people, but a lot of us can't do a lot of stuff true. because we're financially restricted. So for someone like Jeff to come out, give a load of money to these causes, I think it's I think it's it is important that the rich people the rich people set this sort of Yeah, because they've got the most. It's at the top the end of society. And they will have the biggest impact because the media will pick up on things they've done, mm-hmm. like the fact that we're talking about. We're literally right now. talking about Bezos right now because of this. Yeah. Um, what do you think about like this idea that he's financed a space program, which do have large carbon footprints? I yeah, I, I guess you could look at that and say it's a massive contradiction. Um, but I am someone that is very. I mean, I, I think that space exploration is one of the most interesting and crucial 
investigations we will ever do as a human race. Finding out more about the world that, or the galaxy that surrounds us is incredibly important. I'm not going to say it's more important than the likes of climate change and direct impacts on our lives, but I think that a funding for for this is is definitely going to have a i think it will have a really good effect and i think that that that's why i i, I personally don't see a problem with it but i guess if, if it's undoing the work that he's already doing by donating something else i think it might be a little bit i can see why there would be criticism but i think that donating for space exploration is a very good decision yeah i think yeah i can understand the criticisms of like is this a big priority right now? But we don't know what the future holds in space travel. I'm really fascinated with space travel. Mm. and I don't want to go to space, but I want other people to go to space. Yeah, on your behalf. Yeah. Because who's going to f- host in focus if, if you're exactly. on Mars? Oh, God, how awful that would be. Live from Mars. Ooh, That'd we could do that. Did anyone hear about the shoe zone closures that were happening? <laughs> <laughs> the big picture stuff. It is, yeah. Shoe zone closed on Mars. Yeah. There's none left. There's none left. There's no... Yeah. That doesn't make any sense, but we'll, we'll laugh to make it less uncomfortable, Martha. Sorry. Don't worry. It's been a long good for day. Good for Mr. Bezos. I think it's good that, to see a rich person donating to a worthwhile cause, and I hope that more, the likes of Branson, Gates, etc. It would be nice, though, so. wouldn't it, if they actually just paid the tax? Oh, it would be even better if they did that. You know, why, why not just pay tax? Or maybe we need a government that actually makes them pay the tax mm. and protect the wealthiest people in society. Mm. Sometimes I think it would actually be helpful if there's a massive treaty across all nations to just say this is the tax rate. Or, like in America, you've got um, an agreement, haven't you, where you pay tax, even if you pay tax in another country, you have to pay tax in America as well. Mm. Mm. There's that agreement. Whereas in this country, you've got like non-DOM status. So you can, if you spend more than a certain amount of time out of the country, then you pay tax somewhere else, but you still live in this country. I think that makes more sense. I think the system we have. Well, the non-DOM. Yeah, because effectively mm. you, you, would you want to, you know, say you do go and move somewhere else. Like, do, do you effectively want to be paying taxes for a system you're not necessarily benefiting from? Because we all pay taxes for, you know, the NHS and, mm. and education, etc. Services that everyone uses. Whereas if you weren't there, it would kind of be like paying for that. I, that's why I feel like yeah. the Americans are slightly outdated. I understand the Americans and why they would do that, do it that way. Because like, mm. it's simpler um, and, it's, and it makes things a bit more yeah. obligatory. But it's it's ultimately, I don't think it's it's as effective. I guess in reality, everyone else also just pays via company tax. And yeah, they just move their companies wherever. People just aren't cracked down on. The richest society are not are not regulated anywhere near enough. No, this is the other thing about the EU is that I'm now restricted on my free, freedom of movement. But a billionaire can move around. Woohoo! Exactly, and they won't be restricted at all. No, whereas That's I true. will be. Back, to, yeah, back to the B word. Brexit. Yeah, thanks, Tom. Yeah, thanks, other Tom. We. I'm in a bad mood for the rest of the week. <laughs> oh well, what can you do? I can't do anything. Shoes on close. Oh my god. <laughs> he can't go anywhere without his shoes. It's true. Are you one of those people that can only go to one store and once it's closed it's the end of the I'm world? I'm a shoes own junkie. That's like me with Next. I don't really shop anywhere else except Next. I feel very comfortable in Next and if Next closed I'd feel very uncomfortable and I wouldn't be able to shop anywhere else. I haven't shopped since Woolworths. Oh my god. What have you been doing? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think we should wrap this up. Yeah, yeah, we're getting a bit delirious in the yes. studio, aren't we? Sorry about that. Look, it's been something a, in the air. It's been a week of lots has happened. Yeah. It's been a good week. It has been. I look forward to next week. Yeah, stay tuned. With the strikes. Yeah, we'll give you another strike update. I think that'll be super important. As next week, we will be two days into the strike. Mm-hmm. Two of, I think Maybe we should go on strike and just pay Christmas songs. No. <laughs> Do you think that would annoy people? That's not even a strike. That's just changing the agenda. Yeah, but really, really I'm bad. I'm backing it. Get the petition started. Get the petition going. Yes. Well, thanks so much for listening to That's In okay. Focus. I've been joined by Tom and Tom. Thank and you. And Karen in First Hour. Thank you. 
Oh no, is it over? Well, don't worry, because if you head on over to DM&FM Podcasts on Anchor, you can listen to all of our other podcasts, as well as keep an ear out for any new episodes. You can also find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. Go on, have a listen. I support you.